Welcome to episode 44 of History of the Marine Corps. We have met the enemy, and they are ours. Our last episode focused on more of the political battles fought in 1813. Madison was up for re-election, Napoleon was facing challenges in Russia, and the British were dedicating more resources to fighting the United States. This episode looks at the United States defense strategy and Britain's offensive strategy along the eastern coasts of the United States and the Great Lakes. We discuss a phenomenal battle on Lake Erie between U.S. Commander Oliver Perry and British Commander Robert Barclay. Throughout the episode, we'll start to dig in on what the United States is doing to prepare for a potential attack on the nation's capital. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Captain James Lawrence, commander of the Chesapeake, just lost a battle with the frigate Shannon. Just a quick tangent here about this conflict. Starship Troopers, the book, I'm not sure about the movie, discussed the confrontation between the Chesapeake and the Shannon. The battle was a humiliation for many United States citizens, one of whom was Madison. It was unnecessary and resulted in the loss of a good ship and hundreds of men. Due to this costly mistake, Orders were given to U.S. naval captains to avoid one-on-one battles. Secretary of the Navy, William Jones, was clear about this order. In a letter to Charles Stewart, he wrote, Should any attempt be made to allure you by a challenge to single combat, I am directed by the President to prohibit strictly acceptance either directly or indirectly. The damage of the Chesapeake-Shannon engagement would linger for a while. In February 1814, Lieutenant George Budd, an officer who served on board the Chesapeake, suggested charges against Lieutenant William Cox, one of the two surviving officers on board the ship. His charges were cowardice, disobedience of orders, desertion from quarters, neglect of duty, and unofficer-like conduct. The evidence against Cox was low and included only the testimony of one eyewitness. But despite the flimsy data, Cox was found guilty on two charges. Unofficer-like conduct for failing to order that retreating sailors be cut down with swords and neglect of duty for responding to Captain Lawrence's calls for help and carrying him below deck. Cox always stood by his innocence, but he accepted his role as a scapegoat. He viewed his convictions as, quote, a sacrifice to heal the wounded honor and reinstate the naval pride of the nation, unquote. He was discharged from the Navy, but enlisted as a private in the Army, where he served out the rest of the war. It took 138 years to clear his name. In 1952, President Truman exonerated Cox, and the Navy Department's records now show William Cox as a third lieutenant in the United States Navy. As we discussed during the last episode, the British had underestimated the United States Naval and Marine forces. To compensate, they dedicated more resources to the war, which meant more men and more ships. In 1813, the British started to increase its North American presence, both on land and in sea. 
British Admiral Warren was accomplishing his mission, and he made it nearly impossible for U.S. warships to leave port. But it was a different story for privateers. While the British contained the U.S. Navy, numerous privateer vessels were escaping and harassing the British off the coast of the U.S. and worldwide. In the Gulf of St. Lawrence, two privateer ships, the Neptune and the Fox, captured a British gunboat and the 15 flat-bottom boats she was escorting. In the West Indies, privateers were performing amphibious landings and raided plantations in Jamaica for food. Privateers were extremely valuable in this war. Constant complaints and protest about privateers from British merchants, farmers, and locals found their way back to Parliament, making the fight more complicated for the British. The efficiency of privateers was clear. On March 3rd, Congress authorized any U.S. citizen to attack British armed ships, even if they did not possess a privateer commission. The U.S. authorized full and ample retaliation for any violation of the laws and usages of war. This authorization also included violations by local Native Americans. Even though retaliation was allowed, few Americans took advantage of the offer and decided to stick to merchant ships. During the war, the United States commissioned 526 privateers and letters of marque. The majority came from three states, 150 from Massachusetts, 112 from Maryland, and 102 from New York. Lloyd's List, one of the world's oldest continuously running journals, which provides weekly shipping news in London, documented that in the first seven months of the war, American privateers captured 500 British merchantmen. Although privateers were having their success, the U.S. military had to figure out how to stop the British from advancing on North American territory. Marine First Lieutenant Thomas R. Swift led the Marine barracks in Norfolk, Virginia. To support Swift in the defense of the city, Commodore Cason moved the Constellation with a fleet of gunboats near Norfolk for protection against attacks from naval vessels. The British fleet spent most of 1813 terrorizing the coastal towns of the United States. In the middle of June, 14 British ships entered Hampton Roads. They sailed up the James River and made preparations for a large fleet to join them. U.S. Naval Commander Joseph Tarbell answered the British's move by sending 15 gunboats down the river to attack their frigates. On land, Lieutenant H.B. Breckenbridge took 50 Marines and 100 sailors from the Constellation and landed on Craney Island, near the Norfolk Navy Yard. It didn't take long for the British to attempt an amphibious landing. On June 22nd, a large force of barges tried to unload on Craney Island, but the defenses stopped the raid and took three barges down. The United States captured 40 prisoners, and the Constellation Marines were celebrated for their success. Four days after the attempted amphibious landing, Swift wrote a letter to Commandant Wharton and stated he was expecting another visit from the British and seven ships were in sight from the town. He ended his letter confirming that his men were all in good spirits. Marines on board naval vessels were feeling the pressure as well. They were on ships off the U.S. coast and in the Great Lakes. With an already small force, the Marines were starting to be spread thin. 
First Lieutenant John Brooks Jr. was ordered to proceed without delay to Hagerstown, Maryland and start recruiting more Marines. He was given a week to complete his Hagerstown task. When the week was over, he would head to Pittsburgh, passing through Cornelstown, Bedford, and Greensburg, recruiting along the way. He would recruit for 10 days in Pittsburgh and head towards Lake Erie with the men he recruited. Back in Chesapeake, the British were deploying more aggressive tactics. British Admiral Warren received orders to implement, quote, the most complete and vigorous blockade of the ports and harbors of the Bay of the Chesapeake and of the River Delaware, unquote. The Constellation and 15 gunboats were doing a phenomenal job defending the city, so the British focused their attention on capturing the U.S. frigate. They put together a massive force for this mission. The squadron included five 74-gun sails of the line, five frigates, two sloops of war, three tenders, and multiple smaller ships. The Constellation had nowhere to run, and instead of immediately attacking, Admiral Warren decided to wait for more British ground troops to arrive. While he waited for reinforcements, he sent ships throughout multiple rivers and inlets around Chesapeake and conducted hit-and-run raids. The British would use short, surprise attacks and withdraw before the United States Armed Forces could respond. There were a few purposes of these tactics. These tactics were meant to shock leadership in D.C., bring the war to the U.S. citizen, cause Americans to lose support for the war, and ultimately remove troops from Canada. The aggressiveness of the British caused military leaders to look at the possibility of an attack on Washington. The Commandant's correspondence confirmed that he was anxious about this potential attack. On May 21st, Commandant Wharton sent a letter to the adjutant, notifying him that he would be leaving Washington and traveling to Philadelphia. Wharton placed the adjutant in charge and requested, quote, An express may be sent for me should any movement of the enemy indicate the intention of approaching our city, unquote. The British continued to sail their fleet throughout the area and take any prize they could. Amphibious forces of 300 men, two brigs, four schooners and a frigate attacked towns along nearby rivers and creeks. Although the attacks were working, the British were facing problems with desertion. When small boats made their way up to smaller waterways, British sailors would flee. However, the risk of sailors deserting didn't outweigh the benefits of Warren's raids. On top of destroying multiple buildings and ships, the British acquired the resources needed to sustain a large army, like food and water. Principio Ironworks, one of the country's largest cannon foundries, was also destroyed. This attack impacted cannon and small arms supplies. Warren conducted raids for a month and a half, and they were successful, and U.S. citizens were traumatized by the frequent attacks. The raids also took 40 prizes and unsettled Washington. In a letter to the president's private secretary, the first lady, Dolly Madison, wrote, quote, One of our generals has discovered a plan of the British. It is to land as many chosen rogues as they can, about 14 miles below Alexandria, in the night, so that they may be on hand to burn the president's house and offices, unquote. She goes on to say that she's not scared, and she keeps an old Tunisian saber within reach. 
British naval commanders around the Chesapeake were optimistic that attacking the U.S. capital would be a comfortable victory. London's leadership wasn't as spirited. They had Napoleon to deal with, and dedicating resources to the war with the United States wasn't a priority. This decision was a blessing in disguise for America. However, Baltimore was the only city to take advantage of London's reluctance to attack. Senator Samuel Smith converted Fort Henry from a pitiful defense structure, with 50 men and a few guns, into a fortress. This remodeling was vital, since the fort guarded the waterways into the city. By the fall of 1813, Smith added 60 heavy naval guns. 56 were salvaged from a French warship previously sunk in the Chesapeake, donated by the French consul in Baltimore. Ships also lined up in front of the fort, to protect it from any rush attempts, and to guard against bombardments from the sea. Washington was a tempting target for the British. The city had little defense and a small population of around 8,000, almost 20% of whom were slaves. However, Madison did not make improvement to the city's security. The most significant improvement was adding a ridiculously understaffed fleet of one schooner and three gunboats. It was unlikely the British would send naval warships through the Potomac River. If they did, Fort Washington could help defend while reinforcements came. However, Bladensburg was considered one of the more likely places the British would use to attack D.C. on land. Madison did nothing to build up Bladensburg's defenses either. James Monroe voiced his concerns about the lack of protection and wanted to start fortifying the capital. Unfortunately, Armstrong felt Washington wasn't in danger, and the U.S. capital stayed as is. Admiral Warren's strategy was working against the United States. Now it was time for him to focus on his previous plan, capture the Constellation. Craney Island stood in his way, and before he engaged with the Constellation, he needed to neutralize the city's defenses, including a battery of 7 guns, 15 gunboats, and 700 troops. 150 were Marines and sailors. Captain Charles Stewart was a phenomenal U.S. naval officer with multiple impressive victories. He helped build the island's defenses. Stewart would have been an excellent resource for this upcoming battle, but Secretary Jones decided to remove Stewart from his current post and assign him command of the Constitution, which was in Boston. It was a confusing move. The Constitution wouldn't be ready to sail for months, and the Battle of Craney Island would start soon. Instead of helping with the war in Washington, Stuart traveled to Boston, where he waited for his ship's repairs. The British began their attack on June 22nd. They outnumbered the defenses of Craney Island and had significant firepower. It seemed like an effortless win, but the small island's defenders put up an intense fight. Despite the odds, Warren wasn't able to land on Craney Island. The British admiral called off the mission and decided to leave the Constellation alone. London didn't welcome the news, and some started to view Warren as an ineffective leader. Three days after the failed attack, the British attacked Hampton's village to make up for the loss. British soldiers captured the town with relative ease, while raping the locals and looting buildings. Although Warren was embarrassed by his men's behavior, no one was punished for this atrocity. So here's an interesting fact that isn't Marine-related. When Congress authorized citizens to attack British vessels, 
They also passed into laws bounties to anyone who sank a British ship, equal to half of the value. A U.S. inventor, Elijah Mix, embarked on his mission to destroy one of the British battleships, using an improved design of the torpedo. The idea of the torpedo has been around for a while. A similar concept was designed by David Bushnell during the American Revolution. He discovered gunpowder could explode underwater, and used his submarine, the Turtle, to fasten a 150-pound mine to Lord Howe's flagship, but the attack was unsuccessful. Now, it isn't a torpedo as we know it today, but more of an underwater mine. He planned to transport the torpedo to the Plantagenet, drop it in the water, and let the current float into the battleship. On July 16th, he set out on his mission on a boat named Chesapeake's Revenge, but was chased off by guards when he was around 80 yards from his target. But he kept trying, and he made multiple attempts from the 19th to the 23rd to get close enough to drop his torpedo. Finally, on the 24th, he got within range of the target, dropped his mine, and watched it float towards the Plantagenet. The explosion was enormous, but not devastating. The ship sustained some damage, but was still operational. Mix attempted to improve on the design, but he couldn't gather more gunpowder for the torpedo. He never made another attack, but I thought one of the early uses of a torpedo was interesting information. Raids continued in August, and Jones looked towards the Marines for support. On August 12th, he directed Commandant Wharton to send reinforcements. Quote, with the least possible delay, detach Lieutenant Miller with all the Marines that can be spared from duty at headquarters with orders to proceed to Annapolis for the defense of that place until recalled by order of the department. Unquote. The very next day, Miller was ordered to proceed by the most direct route to Annapolis. 100 Marines under the command of Lieutenant Miller left for Annapolis. When they arrived, they apparently impressed the hell out of the governor. Miller reported to the commandant, quote, The governor of the state, Levin Winder, has been remarkably civil to us. We paid him some military attention on our arrival, Due to the chief's magistrate of the state, he has been so unused to this kind of attention from the troops stationed here that he appears to mark us as his peculiar favorites to the almost entire exclusion of the rest. Unquote. But despite their new fan, the Marines wouldn't stay there for long and left Annapolis on the 31st and headed back to Washington. During the start of 1813, Oliver Hazard Perry was given command of the naval force building on Lake Erie. Perry came from a renowned military family. Christopher Perry, his father, fought during the American Revolution and was captured twice. His mother was a direct descendant of the uncle of William Wallace. And when Perry had kids, most of his kids would serve as well. Oliver himself has served in the Quasi-War and the Tripolitan War. He served 15 years before his assignment on Lake Erie and earned the rank of Master Commandant. But regardless of his family's military history and his own experience, the British had a substantial advantage on Lake Erie. Lieutenant Robert Barclay was Perry's equivalent on the British side. Barclay decided to enforce a blockade on the port, prohibiting Perry and his new fleet from heading into the lake. On September 9th, Barclay sailed 11 ships and the following morning, an American scout spotted the fleet. 
Perry immediately responded by sending his squadron. He was on the flagship Lawrence and flying a flag with the words, Don't give up the ship. This gesture was a tribute to Captain James Lawrence of the USS Chesapeake. We touched on this battle during our last episode, but just for a quick recap, during the Chesapeake's battle with the Shannon, Lawrence was shot by a British Royal Marine. As he was carried below deck, he shouted his last words, quote, Tell the men to fire faster and not give up the ship. Fight her till she sinks, unquote. Perry's flagship was named after Lawrence, and I can't think of a better way to honor his dead colleague while instilling motivation in his fleet. When the two fleets spotted each other, they immediately prepared for battle. Barclay had an inexperienced crew. Around 50 of the 364 men in Barclay's squadron were British sailors. The remaining men were either soldiers or Canadians who weren't familiar with naval warfare. Barclay's initial plan was to attack Perry quickly and have his men board the U.S. ships. However, he would need speed to accomplish this plan effectively, and the wind changed directions to his disadvantage. He moved to plan B. The two fleets formed a line of battle and positioned their larger ships in the center, surrounded by smaller vessels. Both fleets had their advantages. For the U.S., they outnumbered the British by men and gunpower. For the British, their long guns could reach targets a mile out, while the U.S. fleet had a maximum range of 500 yards. Perry planned to sail towards the British as quickly as he could to help neutralize the long gun threat. As Barclay positioned his fleet, Perry responded by arranging his ships with two schooners taking the lead, followed by the Lawrence. Behind his flagship was the Caledonia, followed by the Niagara, followed by the remaining ships. At 11.45, the battle commenced, with the British firing the first shot. The long guns were aimed at the Lawrence and immediately hit their target. The shot took out the ship's rigging, which made it difficult to sail. Perry continued with this plan, and 10 minutes after the opening of the battle, he was able to get 250 yards of the Detroit. Behind the Lawrence was supposed to be the Niagara and the remaining smaller boats. The plan was for the Niagara to fight the Queen Charlotte, but Jesse Elliott did not stick to the plan for whatever reason. The British noticed this hesitation, and the Queen Charlotte moved forward to help the Detroit fight the Lawrence. The Queen Charlotte's captain was killed at the start of the engagement, but Perry and his flagship continued to suffer extensive damage. The men on the Lawrence were furious at Elliot's cowardice. They were left to face the full force of the British fleet alone. Two hours into the battle, 22 men were dead and 66 wounded. That's one man dead every five and a half minutes and one injured around every minute and 50 seconds. Every gun on the Lawrence was destroyed, the riggings were demolished, and the ship was smashed. Perry wrote, quote, In this situation, we sustained the action upwards of two hours with canister distance until every gun was rendered useless and the greater part of Lawrence's crew either killed or wounded, unquote. But despite the damage, Perry still refused to surrender. He gave command of the ship to his first lieutenant, John Yarnell. Perry lowered the flag with the words, don't give up the ship, and carried it with him as he boarded the only small boat left on the Lawrence. His 12-year-old brother, 
James Alexander Perry, was on the ship with him and rowed as fast as they could to the Niagara. Yarnell didn't last long and struck his colors to save what remained of the Lawrence. Barclay's ship sustained heavy damage as well, and despite the surrender of the Lawrence, he could not board the U.S. ship to take control. This dilemma gave Yarnell enough time to repair the ship's damages and raise its colors again. At 1445, Perry sailed the Niagara towards the battle. As he advanced, a strong wind picked up and he was able to reach his target in 15 minutes. Perry passed through the enemy's line, firing from the starboard and port sides and hitting the enemy surrounding him. He kept the steady fire and the other U.S. ships followed suit. The American firepower was too much and the two British ships and a schooner surrendered. A second schooner and a sloop tried to escape. When Perry returned to the Lawrence, sailing master William Taylor reported, quote, Every poor fellow raised himself to greet him with three hurrahs. I do not hesitate to say there was not a dry eye on that ship. Unquote. Perry was victorious. In a letter to General Harrison, Perry wrote his famous line, quote, We have met the enemy and they are ours. Unquote. This was an important victory. This was the first time in history when an entire British naval squadron surrendered. This win also allowed the United States to regain control of the North and ended the alliance between the Native Americans and the British. In a letter to Secretary Jones, Commodore Chauncey wrote, quote, Perry has immortalized himself, unquote. Perry's victory overshadowed Elliot's cowardice, and the captain of the Niagara would never be disciplined. On September 15th, Lieutenant Yarnell wrote a letter to Ohio newspapers criticizing Elliot, but nothing came out of this. Both Perry and Elliot were honored with congressional gold medals, but the two would fight over what happened until their death. The Marines took a lot of damage during this battle. Out of the 27 killed, 5 were Marines, and of the 96 injured, 12. Among those killed was Lieutenant Brooks. He was described as an elegant young officer, full of spirit, amiable manners, remarkable for his personal beauty, and the son of a soldier of the Revolution. Brooks died in the middle of battle while speaking with Perry. He was playfully teasing Perry while making observations about the enemy when a cannonball hit his thigh and threw him to the other side of the ship. His body was mangled, but he was still alive. An eyewitness report states, quote, Carried down to the surgeon's apartment, he asked for no aid, for he knew his doom and that he had life in him for only one or two half hours. But as he gave himself over to death, he often inquired how the day was going, and when the crowd of newcomers from the deck showed how deadly was the contest, he ever repeated his hope for the safety of the Commodore. Unquote. A 12-year-old boy was on the ship and was a favorite of Brooks. They were close, and when the boy was carrying ammunition to one of the guns, he saw Brooks fall. He threw himself on the ground and broke down crying. As Lieutenant Brooks quietly died, his last request was, quote, that this boy might kindly be taken care of, unquote. On the Lawrence, Marines First Lieutenant John Brooks Jr., Corporal Philip Sharpley, 
and Privates Jesse Harlan and Abraham Williams were killed. Injured included Privates James Byrd, William Burnett, William Baggs, David Christie, and Henry Vanpool. Vanpool would end up dying 10 days later. On the Niagara, Private Joshua Trapnell was killed. Sergeant Nathaniel Amos Mason, Corporal Scott, and Privates Thomas Miller, John Rumis, George McManamy, George Schofield, and Samuel Cochran were wounded. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we start getting ready for the attack on Washington, D.C. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.